0: So I just returned from uh, a, a little bit of trip. I'm in the, the heaviest travel kind of window of my life. Um, it kind of just fell that way. There's a bunch of justice conferences starting. And even though I have no official capacity with it anymore, all the international sites like to bring uh, me out to try and connect to the founding of the justice conference. What was the heart? What was the theology? What was kind of going on there? And so... There's three right in a four-week span, and so about a year ago when we were looking at that, the teaching team said, um, do it, uh, go represent us, you know, who knows if you'll ever get invited again, um, if you suck, you probably won't. Um, but, uh, but so it kind of just fell that way, so I'm, I'm right in, in this little weird transition time between uh, the Justice Conference, the second one in Australia, the first one in New Zealand, Um, Back this weekend, and then next weekend, over my birthday weekend, there's one in Holland, which uh, which is kind of like homecoming for me because I'm Dutch. Um, And uh, and so I thought I'd show start us out by showing a little recap video of the Australia conference, just because we talk about it I think a lot, and it's a part of our legacy and our history. Um, But but it's kind of in my mind it would be kind of fun just to reconnect with what's happening in different places around the world and then talk about a little bit so here's a video recap video from what went on in Australia we're exposed to more information, more opinions, more ideas than we've ever been exposed to before the Justice Conference is a fantastic place to put you in front of really key thinkers and really key speakers who are going to reorientate your heart for justice and put you in a biblical alignment with what God wants to do. When you look at it at that local level, it moves to a global level. What you see is a culture shift. This year we're seeing our conferences in South Africa, Amsterdam, Hong Kong, Melbourne, New Zealand, in the US. And so this is something that's actually growing on a global scale. The Justice Conference makes you realize I am not alone. I am in a community of believers who believe the Word of God. That's the power of the Gospel, that not only does God save, but God has a long proven history of using broken, fallen women and men for His glory and honor. It's not categorical, there aren't bad guys and good guys, actually there's human beings and everybody needing relationships that bring life. To come to something like the Justice Conference and have a community of people who speak the same language, who have the same heart, who can spur each other on and encourage each other, it's so crucial. It's the only place that I know of where in the Justice Conversation we're bringing together the NGO world and we're bringing the church world. When I'm inviting more of him and less of me, the concept of justice becomes so obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, what God has called us to in biblical justice touches the very fabric of our economic and political system. We're called into a discomfort, but a holy discomfort. When I actually have this extravagant love in public, I think all of us have worked out. No one individual, church, community, or organization can tackle these amazing problems. If we just work together, if we just dream of possibilities, there is hope. God does extraordinary things when we give him time to speak. The Lord Almighty is to be exalted by his justice. And the Holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. So that was super fun being in Australia. Australia was hard. Um, the, the the entire trip, I spoke 11 times in 12 days. I had an all-day meeting, a couple pastors, lunches involved, um, and there's media interviews and, and kind of the like. Um, and so Australia was a lot of hard work, but on that video, there's at least four people that in the next year, year and a half, I want to have here speaking to us because they're, uh, they're amazing people with voices um, and stories uh, that would blow your mind, and they're becoming friends too. So, what's a weird thing with some of this travel is, uh, as Tamara would say, some of my really good friends in life are 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 becoming international, are international people that you know you only get to see once a year or on Skype, uh, which which is hard uh, when you have friends that are international like that. So the the Two key takeaways for me that um, were really fascinating and I think are relevant to us are the questions I get about uh, the church Antioch. So when I'm at churches doing Q&As, when I'm meeting pastors, when I'm doing uh, a radio interview or sitting down with like a magazine that's that's talking to me, I always get asked about Antioch. Tell me about your church. Um, Tell me about the church that founded this thing. Like how did this thing and where did this thing come from? And so I'll start talking about Antioch, and it's usually something to the effect of, let me tell you about, about a guy named Kip. And uh, just kidding. <laughs> so uh, my in-laws are in the service today, uh, so that means you have to laugh extra hard at jokes um, so that they feel their daughter did well um, marrying me. And there's two interesting things that happen when I speak at churches abroad. Usually when I travel, I'll end up speaking at a church uh, on that Sunday, and uh, two distinct trends that have emerged. One, nobody really gets dry humor, um, <laughs> which is really painful, uh, and two, uh, we, really, we really have serious conversations at Antioch, deep conversations at Antioch, and that's not necessarily the norm, and so I've begun to realize that a lot of congregations aren't really ready for a deep conversation so I'll say something like hey I need you to, to really think along with me this morning because um, we're gonna we're gonna go fast we're gonna dive deep uh, I believe that when Jesus said feed my sheep he didn't he didn't mean pet my lambs um, that we're really supposed to like kind of wrestle with ideas but those are the two things that have emerged um, anyways dry humor hopefully works here at home um, but I get asked about Antioch and uh, I'll usually say, wow, it's, 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 a, it's a group of people that really just want to be authentic. We, we want to live, live out the Christian faith and we want to do it without kind of the weirdness that can sometimes happen, some of the cliches that can sometimes happen, some of the judgment that can sometimes happen. Or just the simplicity or burying your head in the sand that can sometimes happen. That we really want to wrestle with truth. We want to grow in our relationship. And, and we we just we really want to own this thing. And so we, we shoot straight. We speak direct. We're we honest. We're transparent. We're authentic. So that's usually kind of where it goes. And people are like, well, tell me more. It must be a big church. I'm like, no, it's not a, not a big church. Well, how did this whole thing start in a small town with with a church that wasn't big. And I'm like, because it's just a group of passionate people that really want to come together and see things happen. And, well, how did that look? Well, there was... In the early days of the Justice Conference, there was volunteers this way, that way, a lot of artists, a lot of people. Micah Borne was in New Zealand, so it was fun getting to, to see Micah and to hang out with him and to collaborate with him. Guys like Micah, you know, were there and kind of talking about it, and it made me realize that that when we started this thing, it was it was a lot of energy by people that had time to do things like interns, that were here because this church welcomes interns, and houses them, you know, in their homes and and loves on them and feeds them and that we've been doing that for a decade now so that there's interns that help with some of these endeavors that we do. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not like there was... 10 people, there was a community here that bought tickets, that gave rides, that, that showed up, that worked on food, that even in year two um, were shuttling over to Portland and helping out. And so we got behind a, a vision to do something and gave it a push um, because we were passionate about those kinds of things. And what's cool is to see how that push or that shove that we gave this thing got it past the breaker waves so that it just kind of kept on going. And so when people ask about Antioch it's just fun to say we're 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 an authentic church we we just like to keep it real and then the second thing that's interesting is i was uh and I've said this before, but what's come from it is is rather telling but um nicho Waltersdorf, who's kind of one of the leading christian thinkers- christian philosophers he's retired out of Yale before that Calvin college, but he at a think tank said a number of years ago that the justice conference had uh, changed the moral, moral vocabulary of the church in America. That we had, we had literally changed the nature of the conversation, the way that people see or talk about justice. And at this all-day meeting that we had in Australia, where you had representatives or the leaders of kind of all the different international justice conferences, so we're all there for this global meeting, and we spend uh, seven hours top of a, a building in a law office, kind of at the boardroom, overlooking Melbourne, and, and in that meeting, what, what, was, what was fascinating is that all of these international sites, so Australia and, and the pastors from uh, the Vine in Hong Kong that you saw in there, really grabbed that language and said, it's not that the Justice Conference has changed the moral vocabulary in some small way uh, for the church in America, but that it's changing the moral vocabulary of the, of the global church. Um, that, that this movement and the way we're talking about it, that we approached it saying we're not going to just talk about justice or great causes, but if you remember, the Justice Conference was trying to center the whole thing in a theology of justice, which sounds incredibly boring and like it wouldn't go anywhere, right? Right. But so these people are saying, no, that's actually at the root of this thing. And it's having an effect in Australia. It's having an effect in in Hong Kong. It will have an effect in these other places. And stories begin to emerge of uh, Janice Ma, the wife of Derek Ma, who heads up the the conference in Hong Kong, which has gone on four years now. She was on a missions trip to uh, Cambodia. And her team was going through this um, facility, uh, of this kind of missions organization, educational facility, everything else, rehab, and they they tour this brand new building, uh, multi-million dollar building that had been built. And they're touring this building, and as the person's giving them the tour, they say, this building was built um, because of a, a conference in Hong Kong called the Justice Conference. And Janice is going like, what is she talking about? Like, you know, she helps lead the thing. Her husband runs it. She's thoroughly confused. So the tour gets done. She grabs the person and says, you mentioned something about a conference in Hong Kong. Like, what are you talking about? She's like, yeah, there's this conference called the Justice Conference. And this woman went to that last year, was so impacted um, by that conference that during the conference, it was like God spoke to her. And she came to us and said, because of that conference, she wanted to donate these millions of dollars to build this building. And Janice is like, oh, my gosh, like I, this story, I could have gone years and years and never heard of this story about how the, the Justice Conference had affected things. In Australia this year, it was fascinating. Um, at the first Justice Conference, there was a 22-year-old girl. She had just finished uni. Uni is what they call uh, the university, which is what they call college. Um, but uh, she had just finished uni. And so this 22-year-old girl was hearing a, a woman who was – deeply involved in the anti-trafficking world and was listening to her talk and came up to her afterwards and just said, listen, you know what? I'm just out of the university. I, I really want to be involved in what you're involved with. How can I jump in and get involved? And the lady kind of arranged a meeting with her. They met and she said, listen, um, what we're trying to do right now is actually uh, do an action against Woolworths, which is, what they call Woolies, but it's the the, the largest Chain by far in Australia. I mean, it just dominates, dots the landscape, and this is the primary store where you kind of get everything. And she says we're trying to do an action to get a magazine that's incredibly exploitive uh, of women. Um, it's it's you know, um, the way they described it to me was like the Australian version of Maxim. And they said so we're we're trying. She told this girl we're trying to get an action to get this magazine removed from the shelves at Woolies because the way it's, it's portrayed there you have all these young school children coming into the store uh, after school and it's, and it's put out there in, in a way that they're going to engage it and, it and it really leads to the exploitation of women, commodification of women. And so we want to do that. So this 22-year-old girl ends up spearheading this campaign to try and uh, perform an action to get this, this retail store chain to remove this magazine. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, over that, the course of that year, they actually succeeded in getting this magazine pulled from Woolies. And that was such a big market that not only did the magazine get pulled from this, this store, the, the magazine actually went under, um, went bankrupt because of it. And you hear these crazy stories. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of them. But you hear these crazy stories of how Christians in different places are being shaped or have been shaped, and then you hear these leaders of these global conferences saying that the Justice Conference is shaping the moral vocabulary of the church globally, um, and it's just mind-blowing. Here's the crazy thing for me. Um, Our mission statement at Antioch is that we would be an authentic expression of Christianity in Bend, Oregon, and that we would have a shaping voice in global Christianity. And as I'm, as I'm telling the story of Antioch and hearing the stories of what, what continues to ripple forward from some of what we've done, it's this crazy, crazy place of going, oh my gosh. Like somehow, some way, God has used and is continuing to use the faithfulness of this congregation to, to make a difference, not only locally, but globally. It's, it's mind-blowing to me. Like it's weird when you get to the point where you're like, wow, we're, we're in the extra innings, um, the bonus round of our mission, that, that we've in some sense accomplished our mission and now we just get to add to that story bit by bit by bit. And so it's an incredible privilege to go and see this and to learn from it, but also to bring our story into that mix and then just to really understand how all that fits together um, and, and I hope that you can catch a little bit of that. Um, whether you're new or whether you've been here for a long time, just to catch a little bit of, of how cool that really is. Does that make sense? So, um, thank you. Uh, Micah will probably write a poem in in two minutes say what I just said in like 30 and in a much cooler way. Um, and we're trying to get him back uh, before uh, too long as well. So it's actually a fun thing because I'm going to roll from what I was sharing at the conference in New Zealand into our message today. Because we're back in our series of 1 Thessalonians and we're in chapter 4. And when I reached out to Pete a ways back and said, hey, what passage do I have in our Thessalonians series when I get back? And he said chapter 4 and I looked at it. Um, and realized that it was on sex, and then kind of ends up with this little dig on, hey, you need to work hard. Um, and I thought, so how do I, how do I come back and talk on sex and work? Um, and uh, Pete's comment was, well, it's, it's two things that everybody does. Um, <laughs> but as I, I was sitting there reading through the text and trying to come up with a sermon, Kate, Katie asked me for a title of the message every week. So I was kind of going, how do you actually come up with a sermon title for this one. And so I wrote something on Facebook, and um, it was kind of interesting, the sermon titles that people came up with. Uh, one person said you could call it, um, you could say that, uh, quote-unquote, it's business time. Um, and uh, someone else said you could call it um, team-building exercises, um, or Fifty Shades of Grace, um, Or the daily grind, which might be a little bit much. Um, Rules of engagement. Um, But uh, it's all joking aside, I I just want to read this and then we're going to pull way, way back to get the story of the gospel to see why this kind of application to daily life comes in and gets its coherence. So... Let's just read it right now. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 1. It says this, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that, in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or a sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins. And as we told you and warned you before, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a being but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business. And work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not depend on anybody. So that's kind of the application. But the interesting thing is this application comes right after Paul has talked about and affirmed the gospel to these people, as Paul does in a lot of his letters. Short amount of space, Paul greets kind of... uh, gives thanks to certain people, makes introduction, and then usually launches right into a conversation about the good news that we have in Christ Jesus, okay? And, and then after he's talked about the gospel in, in much or most of his letters, he then moves on to a little bit of a word of therefore, kind of because of this good news, because you're brought into this story, because you're in Christ, then, then here's a couple words just to help you frame how you should live. Because... What else is going to tell you this? You may not have grown up, certainly if you're a Gentile, you may not have grown up with the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament scriptures being taught to you. So you may, may not have the benefit of the law. Uh, you might be new in your faith. Or as someone that grew up Jewish and had the benefit of the law and, and is just caught up in all sorts of ritual and, and a lot of ceremonial stuff, you might not know really what, what emerges as the dominant or most important things for you. Right. So Paul is kind of writing to these people with the pastor's heart and he's saying, after I've told you the story that you're in, here's the implication of that. And then he gives some things. But we need to talk about the story bit. I told you a couple of weeks ago at our 10 year anniversary that this is the way we've spelled the gospel for a long time in America. That the cross saves me. Remember, I kind of said that's how we write out the gospel. In fact, I was speaking at a church recently, and I set them up uh, by saying, "Let me, let me, let me break down for you, kind of what actually is the Christian story, so that we can kind of then dive into it." And the Christian story is that it it is the gospel first and foremost. It is the gospel first and foremost. This is central. That that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, so that we no longer are, are caught up in sin but are considered righteous, that this substitution of Jesus for us, this gospel story, that this is central. And then comes this idea, because of that, that we get to be right with God. So righteousness is secondary. And, and that's kind of the next layer out. Because of that good news, then, then we get to kind of consider this righteousness. And then thirdly, we get this vertical dimension. Uh, if this is vertical, this horizontal dimension. So it's the gospel first, and then, and then righteousness second. And then justice or good works for our neighbor is third. This is, this is kind of the sequence, the linear sequence of of priority in the Christian life. And and I said, right. And everyone says, right. And I said, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. I think that's wrong. And it begins by, I think, having a too-zoomed-in picture. It's not that this sentence isn't true, but a too-zoomed-in picture of the gospel that leads us to this idea that you've got the primary and then you've got the secondary. So gospel, righteousness, and then justice is a tertiary thing. Okay, And I actually think this is wrong because this is a piece of a bigger story that is the good news. If you had a teeter-totter, uh, a, a, uh, a teeter-totter, a seesaw, if you had a seesaw, I'm, I'm banned from using electronic devices from now on. It's, it's, it's pads, pads of paper. From here on out. Now it's ripped and it's going to bother Kip. Um, If you had a seesaw and you had Jack and Jill, um, I wrote a book on creativity, you know, Uh, Jack and Jill, and you have them and they live in Manhattan um, and that's buildings and they're in a park and Jack is on the seesaw with Jill because Jill's his friend and she just lost a parent. So Jill is experiencing grief. What I'm saying is if you have a whole story going on, this is a story, right? If we zoomed in to this part right here and we saw the fulcrum of the seesaw story, like this is a seesaw story. What's going on? They're seesawing. Okay, what is seesawing? Well, seesawing is the the teeter-totter goes up and down. How does it go up and down? Well, it's got a pipe or some kind of a a sawhorse or something in the middle that, when you give it an upward force on one side, the weight uh, on the other side, with gravity, when this person pushes off their legs, makes it pivot around this fulcrum. This fulcrum is the effective, efficient cause of the seesawing. It happens here. There is no seesawing without this fulcrum right here. Do you see what I'm saying? Get closer. Get closer. Zoom in. That thing right there. Who's involved doesn't matter. It just matters that there's a, there's a pipe right here that's, that's the, the, the mechanism. We saved by a wooden cross or we saved by, by what happened on that wooden cross? What happened on the wooden cross? When we zoom in far enough, we get past Jesus on the cross and we, we come right smack into the wood itself and we go, this thing, this thing is the fulcrum. This cross right here, this is the fulcrum. This is the pivot for humanity. This is the pivot not just for humanity, this is the pivot for me. Jesus gave a force, he pushed his legs down. I get to go on the opposite direction even though I don't deserve to because of this cross and the pivot that's happening here. So that's not false, that's true. But that's a transaction. That is a, that is a a piece, that is a small, like central piece of a bigger story. And when we say that this is the gospel, we basically create that that. Three-tiered thing that says what happens first is it's really a transaction with me, and then and then what do I do? I don't know. Um, I'll look good to people, um, so I'll go after righteousness and and want to experience God, and and then what? Well, justice and horizontal works, but heck, that's not really necessary because <laughs> I've already been saved. And God already loves me because I go to my Bible studies and I learn about him and I sing worship songs. So, geez, this seems like it has a cost, this love stuff, this this justice stuff. So, I mean, maybe I'll do a little bit, but it's not really necessary. It's tertiary. So I'll just center on the gospel because I've been taught that I can just stay there. That's central. Um, That's like saying that we're going to somehow understand this whole story by just zooming in on the fulcrum of this seesaw. And it's just not true. It's not true. And so what is true is what I kind of was sharing a couple of weeks ago that, that Paul says that God was reconciling the world. So God is the direct object, not the cross. What's being done is not saving but reconciling, which includes salvation, by the way. And and the direct object isn't just me, but it's the world. So God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ Jesus. Um, Jesus is necessarily in this spot. It's not some mechanism. It's Jesus, the person, and what he did on the cross as the sacrificial lamb. That this is the gospel story. You see, because the story is important. We can talk about the election, and it's a powerful news story. Most of you are, are caught up with it. And if you're not caught up with it, your news feeds on Facebook are caught up with that story. Because stories are powerful. And if I called you up to this stage, the most the most amazing, liberating question I could ask you would be, tell me about your story? How's it going with your job? How are you feeling? Are you feeling lonely or connected? H- how, how is it going with your family? What, what's, what trouble is that? What, what really is the, stor- the story, your narrative? The one that nobody ever really asks you about. That's the most powerful kind of question that you can ask somebody. And it and it's so much bigger than kind of just the news story out here. But what's even more important than that story, or, or powerful in your life, is the story that shapes you. Right? I can tell you my story. But what's, most, uh, what's the most powerful thing is the story, the bigger story, the meta narrative, the, the world in which I inhabit that is shaping my story. Does that make sense? It's, we can talk about it as pop culture, culture, worldview, religion. Um, your family history, but all of what goes on that is is above you and is making you who you are and directing your desires and ambitions. That thing that never really gets talked about or that you might not even know unless you sat down with a counselor or really sat down to journal it out, but that kind of hidden story behind you is actually what is shaping you. And it's powerful. It's a narrative. And what what God is doing is saying there once was a story that I created this world and it was supposed to live out a story. And that story got messed up. And so I created and called a people out unto myself that those people were going to begin to restory the world. That they were going to be a light to the nations. The children of Abraham were going to go out and they were going to show them how not living like the world and not letting kind of your worldview or your desires dictate your story. They were going to live according to God's story. So the law was a telling of God's story and his desires for people. That they were going to come up underneath that meta narrative and be shaped by that. Yet they didn't. And so we get to Isaiah 59. Probably my second favorite passage in all of Scripture, and I'll read it quick this time, but it comes right after Isaiah 58, where God says, you want to know me, and you want to be right with me, you have to do justice. So he obliterates this threefold distinction and says they're all one and the same. You see, the the Hebrews had this kind of uh, monism. It was like a singularity idea that, that is very different than the Greeks, so for the, the Jews, badness was parasitic on goodness. In other words, goodness is straight, badness is the straight thing bent. For the Greeks it was good and bad, like the flesh is corrupt, the spirit is is good. Um, the world is bad getting out of this world good. This, they had two different categories where kind of the Hebrew idea was much more this idea of redeeming what has what kind of been broken. That's why all throughout Scripture, the, the, the idea is that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. It's the restoration and the redemption, the reconciling of this world. The Greek-informed Christianity that has dominated us for a very long time is very different. And it says um, that we're going to be transported out of this world. Do you see the idea there? So that me being saved is all about me being transported, where the Hebrew idea of salvation was all about me being transformed. Big difference. And and you see these things come together in Isaiah 59, where it says, So justice is driven back. Righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. And God looks, the Lord looked, and he was displeased that there was no justice He saw that there was no one, no one that was going to fix what was broken. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. And then it says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ was actually God- Reconciling the world to himself so that there would be good news of the restoration of justice whereby we are right people and rightly aligned so that the story would be correct. That it would be God's story. That's the good news is that we're going to begin to live out God's story or we're going to begin to live out his kingdom. So Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we no longer kind of figure out what our desires are or our will is for our life, but we go basically, God, what is your will for this world? And how do I get involved in that with my life? I serve you, I serve the king in the kingdom. As a citizen of that realm, not as a citizen of the the Roman Empire or the American, um, the country of the... By the way, we are the United States of America. We're not America okay? There's South America, there's North America, Canada's in America, Venezuela's in America, and and there's this real interesting thing. America, by the way, comes from Amerigo Vespucci, who was a Florentine explorer because Columbus refused to say that he'd found anywhere other than India, right? So the West Indies were his thing, but we're named after this Florentine uh, explorer, right? To say we're America to the rest of the world sounds really, really, really um, well, just imagine. <clears throat> okay, so wh- let's let's start referring to ourselves as the United States or the United States of America. Um, <clears throat> anyways, um, make the United States great again. Um, the uh, and that wasn't a dig on that wasn't a dig on any. Uh, now I gotta ba- I'll balance it out before the service is over. I'm, I am. Com- I'm completely neutral um, this Sunday. Um, that, w- by the way, that wouldn't have fit on a hat, and I understand that. There's, there's, there's apparel considerations. Um, but this idea, this idea that God is through Jesus Christ restoring us, the graphos was the writings, the scriptures, and Jesus came and he says, how come you didn't know the scriptures, the writings, the graphos, the, the, the words that, that spelled out the story, the plan? How come you didn't know that? Uh, they say a picture is worth a thousand words. Photography, when they came up with that in the 1800s, it, it basically means light writings. You know, So writings, scriptures, graphos, Pictures are worth a thousand words. Photography, the incarnation, Jesus Christ coming in the person, like the flesh, was, was coming as truth. No interpretation needed. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, he's saying, I am coming down and there is no barrier to your understanding what's happening. I'm here in the flesh to tell you and to show you. And and let me show you the first thing. I only do what God tells me to do. I only say what he gives me to say. It's about the story that God is writing and I'm here serving that story and I'm trying to restory you. You get that? If you, are, if you are in Christ, if you are being brought into Christ, what is happening in your life, should be happening in your life, is not just an understanding of a transaction about a fulcrum with a seesaw. That's a part of it. But the bigger picture is that there is a story called the gospel or the good news, and Jesus is trying to restore your life. So that more and more you come into this understanding that you can walk by faith, not by fear. So Jesus would come to his disciples and say, fear not. Why? Because at your greatest point of fear is where faith is the most challenging. If you're worried about finances, that's where faith is the most challenging, If you're worried about our country, that's where faith is the most challenging. If you're worried about health, that's where faith is the most challenging. So Jesus was coming and saying, there are a lot of things trying to twist your story to go a different way, a human way, caught up within your own worldview, the way your parents raised you, the way society teaches you. And and there are these temptation moments where you're afraid to deviate from the story. But you don't have to. Because the story is real and you can trust the story and you can trust the story maker. And so you live by faith and you walk by faith and you begin to understand that the good news is in your relationship with God, that you you are right and that justice matters and that it all flows together into a one kind of holistic thing. That, That that's the way it's supposed to be, that you're being brought back into the goodness or the alignment that God originally intended for you, not into a project list of priorities you 've been brought back into what it means to be human. Does that make sense so so Paul is saying in, in all of his gospel writings. He's, he's giving us a new meta-narrative that's going to shape us and how we see the world. That this story affects everything, should affect everything else. And that's what's so hard, I think, for Christianity in America right now. is We have this transaction around a fulcrum, and then we really don't know what to do beyond that. And it leaves a lot of questions and a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety because we are disconnected from the story. So the story goes like this, that it's about bringing things back into alignment. Another word for that would be unity. How do you have unity? You have to have love because it's the nature of love to bind two things together. And so Jesus is coming and saying, listen, don't you understand the simplicity of this? That God wants you to be happy in relationship with him and in harmony with others. That that's where your pleasure is going to be found. And so love is your prime directive as you love and bring things into wholeness and togetherness. And so you have certain desires, a desire for pleasure. Um, And that desire is supposed to serve wholeness a desire for having the the joy of good relationship, intimacy with the spouse, love for your children that that brings that relationship tight, that you have desires that fuel that and you have desires that would actually um, try to devour that for a different kind of fleshly pleasure. That that you could take those God-given desires for food and use it for gluttony. That God-given desire for, for sex that brings wholeness and use other human beings to gratify that urge but bring about greater brokenness in this world. That you can use that impulse towards work and that, that understanding, that gratitude of a job well done and, and instead go to, I'll ride off of other people's work and be a sloth or lazy that this desire, the desires, that the whole set of them that are in us are pointers to the kinds of people that we ought to be when love is involved and we're looking for the highest form of pleasure which comes in relationship. And in a consumer society, when we're taught to consume or to indulge those, those urges or those pleasures at every turn, we end up with a real tension, don't we? We, we want to respect marriage, but we also want to gratify ourselves. We want to respect women, but men also find that they can have pleasure in objectifying women. We want to have community, but we also kind of pivot off of people in that community using them for our own ends, and it destroys community. I had an email this last month that way. Seeing for for me to see with my own eyes the destruction of how this works out when somebody is abusing that within a community. The ripple effect. And so when Paul brings us here, he's bringing us here with, with this understanding, 1 Thessalonians, he's bringing us here with this understanding that at the root of holiness and goodness is relationship. Just look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Uh, Someone help me out. Goodness, faithfulness, self-control. All of these are relational qualities. They're relational either with God, myself, or others. Right? Self-control. Like, it's it's having a right relationship with my own desires so that myself doesn't get out in an inordinately negatively impact culture. Um, Gentleness and faithfulness. um, It's... It's a a relational quality. If you look at the, the bad list of virtues in Galatians, you begin to see things like greed. I'm going to take more than I need. Lust, I'm going to try and gratify myself at the expense of others. Lust is the opposite of love. And you keep going and you begin to see that the vices are all negative relational things. Basically, sin can be defined in terms of relationship. Anything that promotes relationship in the right kind of way, godly relationship, is good. But when you you begin to look at sins, stealing, ad- adultery, lying, uh, all of the sins are things that that affect negatively relationships. There's even categories in here: power, money, alcohol, where it's it's a sliding scale. It, it's really good money. It's really good alcohol. Well. I don't know if I can say that, but it's not bad, right? Um, When it promotes relationships. That's why Jesus turned water into Pinot Noir at at, at that first (laughs) miracle. And it promotes relationship. It's a celebratory thing. But in excess... And you begin to break relationship, then it begins to be a bad thing. So power, you can use your influence for good. Be a servant leader, but don't become like the pagans and begin to lord it over people dominating them. So again, you you have things that are just bad because it breaks relationship. You have things that, that the further up they go on a sliding scale, break relationship. That's sin. Sin destroys relationship. And so Paul is going in here and he's saying, listen, you're... You're, uh, you're doing a pretty good job with this already. He's affirmational. He's not legalistic. He's not guilting people. He's not talking down to them. And he says, you're doing a pretty good job with this, but I'm encouraging you to go all the way more and more because if you, if you don't understand the story that you're in, what you're ultimately trying to do, what God's will is for your life, how you're supposed to be a part of a kingdom that has wholeness and unity through love, and is a just society with right and just people in it, right, where it manifests joy in the right kind of place. If you don't understand that story, then you're going to go further and further this way. When you understand that story, you go further and further this way, and you won't be abusing your brother and your sister. You see, the Baptist churches I grew up in, they, they made you, like, feel dirty, like sex is dirty. No. Breaking relationship with people to serve your own desires is selfish and despicable because you're damaging another human being. You turn sex into a dirty thing, you end up with, with couples that have really strange, like, honeymoons. Right? And they end up in therapy, and they end up with a... Like, sex isn't a dirty thing, but abusing it is. Because you're breaking relationship. You're breaking and violating the sacred bonds of community where we're working towards the same end. And when he gets to the end here, he basically says the same thing with work. And so as you're you're not doing the things that would abuse this relationship with other people, that you're going to do the kinds of things, work hard, lead a quiet life. In other words, be, be productive and constructive in society. That you're working towards the common good. And you're doing it in a way that that people look at you and they go, wow, that's the kind of character, that's the right kind of person that that we should all aspire to be. And it was in a a day and age when everybody worked with their hands and and kind of um, your business ethics were were the same as your own ethics. So this is an interesting one today. Like you have your own kind of work ethics, but then there's questions about your, your business or corporation that you work for. What are the ethics of that? And how are people going to view that? And in serving that or, or laboring there, how is that affecting other people? And it's a really long conversation, um, but it's one that we need to jump into more and more with regard to creation care or ethical supply lines or, um, or, or just what is it that we're doing in this world and, and benefiting from that might be negatively impacting other people. It's abstract, but it's the principle here. Because the story, the meta-narrative the meta we're in is not simply this. Um, as long as you don't know that you're harming someone else and as long as you stay in your lane and don't do anything that's really too bad and as long as you know that Jesus loves you and it doesn't matter if you keep sinning because he's already forgiven all those sins and as long as you kind of know that you're gonna be transported to another like realm, after you die, Greek concept. Um, and as long as, you know, you know that and then tick off a couple religious boxes here and there to make your, yourself feel good so that you don't have too much guilt, that as long as you live that way, you're, you're doing pretty good. Like that's an, a, a very lowest common denominator American way of hedging our bets, isn't it? I mean, we know how to maximize things. We know how to get the essence Gospel primary, we know how to get the essence out of something and say, "Okay, I got that. I'm good there." But now I can also sneak in all of these things, and I don't really have to feel bad about it because what does this have to do with this? And when we understand the story, when we're restored as Paul is trying to do with his people by telling them the gospel, and then beginning to say, "Now, do you see the outworking of this? Do you see how?" how salvation and righteousness and justice are one whole thing as God is reconciling the world to himself and that you are now in Christ. And as someone who is in Christ, that means you and other people are the body of Christ, which means that you are the ongoing incarnation of Jesus Christ, which means the right arm of God that came down to the world in the the form of Jesus to set things right is, is continuing. That good news is continuing today in the form of the body of Christ which you and I are a part of as we move forward as messengers and witnesses of a better way of, of living the right way of living a story that God is writing in and through us and we proclaim this truth not only with our words but with our actions and in, as we do so we are salt and light in this earth to tell people that are living according to the flesh that there's a different way that they are called to and that they were made for and that there's a kind of They can have there that they're not going to find anywhere else, and that's why Jesus says, "As you're doing this, people will look at you and know that you're my disciples." Meaning, they will know by looking at you when you're 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 doing this, when you're story the right way, living the right kind of story, that you are the way, the truth, and the life that they can they can look to and learn from and join into. Does that make sense? We don't just look to Jesus and go, wow, that's pretty cool that he was the way, the truth, and the life, the one sent from God. We are the body of Christ. And that's why I believe the local church is the hope of the world. And I think we can get pulled aside to different things that begin to cut away at church attendance or 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 being in community with Christians and because the, the world tells us these things are so important and it feels so urgent. And then little by little as we cut ourselves off from fellowship, from encouragement, from the story that's supposed to be our story, we get caught up in a different narrative. And we begin to get pulled more and more into that story, that narrative, And we're no longer the light that gives people an idea of a different way but we're being led astray so Paul says with regard to these things remember unity don't use each other be reconcilers work hard contribute not consume so that other people might see your life and understand what is true about the world does that make sense Father We have a long way to go in our understanding of who we are, whose we are, who has made us, what we have been made for, who has redeemed us, what redemption means, and what does it mean like to live as redeemed ones in this world that, that is broken. We have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. My family has a long way to go. I pray that you would give us the the stomach and the fortitude to dive deep, not into an Americanized form of Christianity, a United States form of Christianity, but a biblical one. That it's not just all about us and our individualism and our, our own wants, wishes, and desires, but that we would learn to kill that part of the self the the flesh, the world, and the devil in us wouldn't hold sway, but we'd learn to to go deep into the spirit of Christ, the spirit, your spirit in us, that we would fan into flame that which is good, that it would reshape and remake us more and more into the image of your son, that we would understand what, what full humanity looks like and the joys and the pleasures and the privileges that are afforded to that. Father, our faith is weak. Fear dominates our thinking. I pray with with the ounce of faith, the mustard seed of faith that we have, that you would grow and encourage that, nurture that, and call us forward in Christ's name.